Welcome to RevOps Corner, where we talk about how B2B SaaS companies scale through revenue operations by interviewing amazing guests and sharing what we see in the trenches every day here at Union Square Consulting. Welcome to RevOps Live number 19 on territory planning. So much selling time is wasted on the wrong prospects. We constantly see fighting on the team over territories and accounts. How can we make the whole team more efficient and more effective? We're going to dive into that today. I have our VP of RevOps, Joel Arnold, to help guide us through this topic. Joel, why should people listen today? Yeah, because territory management is one of the biggest topics that affects the most number of people in uh, the sales team and beyond. It can make or break certain people, you know, having a good territory or not. So it's always a contentious point. It always goes with a lot of moving pieces. And I think it's really important for, for a lot of people. Couldn't agree more. When I worked at Salesforce, we used to always talk about success being contingent upon the three T's, territory, timing, and talent. Um, one could argue that the timing is reflective of the territory as well. And I bet we'll get into that today. But I'm excited to dive in. As always, we have Sarah Ra, our event producer, manning the controls here. Sarah, thank you for helping us out and running this event as always. Hello, everyone. Welcome. So if you're not familiar with us, we're a revenue operations consulting firm. We work with early and mid-stage B2B SaaS startups. We help them build out all things revenue operations. We do this event every single week, usually on Wednesdays at noon. Today is an exception because I was traveling yesterday. We record this and post it to the podcast. You guys can access that on our website. Uh, we will also announce that via our newsletter. We're going to stop announcing it via email because we're worried people are getting too many emails from us. So if you want to get an email rewind, reminder, you can go to our website and sign up for the newsletter. Sarah is going to share the links there. And Sarah, if you haven't shared the link for the newsletter, make sure to add that in there. And then that newsletter comes out on Fridays. Everything that we do in terms of our social media can be accessed on our website, unionsquareconsulting.com. Without further ado... Joel and I are going to dive into this topic. Um, he's going to talk through a number of talking points. I'm going to ask some questions and add my own commentary. We'll encourage you guys in the audience to ask your questions. Send it in the chat. We'll call on you when we have a, an opportunity. You can jump on video and ask your question, and we'll do our best to answer it. And without further ado, Joel, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, happy to. I've been talking sales territories for, gosh, the better part of a decade at this point, and Beyond the fact that, you know, it can make or break somebody's year to get a good or a bad territory. Um, and if you talk to salespeople, they're always arguing over whether or not they have a good enough territory versus, you know, the person sitting next to them. But also a lot of things are changing right now with territory management. So one of the biggest things that we've seen over the last five years, I would say, and especially through the pandemic is the transition from uh, geography-based territories where, you know, you're getting in the car or getting on an airplane and you're going to go visit your customers in person to more of an inside sales approach and for lack of a better term, the Zoom approach to uh, sales engagement. So that's a very big thing that's shifting at the moment. Um, and so beyond that, I, I, I personally think that there's just a better way as well. I mean, if you, even if you still do use geography um, to drive your sales process. There's a lot of people that still get on the road. I still think that geography is kind of a bad way on its own of dividing up sales territories. I think there's a more scientific approach to it. And then um, today I'd like to get into how very tactically we, we go about generating sales territories and then applying them to the team. 
That's great. I completely agree. I mean, like I've spent a long time in sales. I still do all our sales here at Union Square Consulting and having a geographic territory can make sense in terms of just trying to visit customers, but it doesn't really add any value to the customer themselves. So if you're bouncing between one different vertical and another from one large company to a small company, et cetera, depending on how big the company you're working for is, you might not have territories divided by size. It's really difficult to get consistent messaging to that, that prospect that will resonate with them because you're spread so thin. You can't learn any anything about the customers or the prospects that you're serving. It's nice when you're booking airline flights, but if we're doing all of our calls over Zoom, what's the point? So as I said, I'm anxious to dive into this with you. I guess my first question though, Joel, is like based on what you've seen, why do you think experienced revenue leaders, VPs of sales and CROs don't already get this? I think they get it. I just don't necessarily think they know how to take it down to the ground. I mean, in typical fashion, uh, common sense is not common practice, right? So while this, I think intuitively makes sense to anybody you'll bring the topic up with, um, it's a lot easier to just say, you know, we've got what, we've got the accounts and system what we have right now. Go call all of them, um, or divide the territories up by New England and Mid Atlantic in the Southeast, like because that's always what we've always done. Um, I don't know. If there's a lot of great reasons for it. I don't think people push back. I think people are just like, okay, what exactly do I do with this? It's really, really difficult sometimes, but. I, starting off and getting the buy-in of the people at the at the top end of the of the stack are, well, that's a really good first step. Yeah, and I think it's another thing is you know if you are a CEO or a CRO or a VP of sales, you've got so much on your plate, you may not have the opportunity to overanalyze something like territory assignment, and you might realize it's not perfect, but really need to delegate to that to somebody else in revenue operations or sales operations, or sometimes it's somebody in neither. And they may just not have the skill set or the experience and everybody's moving so fast and you end up with a sales rep that has a really poorly designed territory that doesn't set that rep up or the team overall up for success. Or, or you don't have territories really at all. What, what I've seen a couple of times is where you go into an account and people will say, hey, I've got, I don't know, the Northeast. Okay, great. There's a company in the Northeast that has a factory. That company also has a as a factory in Atlanta, uh, the person in Atlanta goes out to the same account. It's gets all confusing. No one's sure quite who, who, who owns that account. And then suddenly a fight ensues. So, you know, there's there, a lot of what people do today is very organic. They kind of add accounts as they go. They allow their reps to sort of add accounts. And if it's in your geography or if it's in your industry by your own personal judgment, well, then that can be in your territory. You just go ahead and add it and let's go. So it it's, can be fairly loosey-goosey. And what I'm suggesting is, you know, shuffling accounts and building territories and sort of growing is a really good thing. You want to keep those things refreshed, but you need to have rules of engagement and you need to have guidelines as well as optimizing the territories that you're delivering to your reps. Yeah. And that's really important for two simple reasons. Number one, all the fighting, you're taking selling time away from your reps and also coaching and time closing deals away from sales leadership. It's just a massively inefficient thing to have as part of your sales process. And then secondly, you're not targeting the best prospects. I know you and I are going to get into a healthy debate on this later, but I'm going to say I agree with you that sales reps should not be left to design you know, their own territories and prioritize all their prospects completely by themselves. Usually what happens 
is that salespeople and all the selling time that we're spending so much money as an organization to have is being invested into the wrong prospects. We're not calling the best people with the best messaging. So we're not building the most pipeline and closing the most business that we can. Yeah, this that is why this is one of the biggest levers that you can use to drive efficiency across the board in your sales team. Uh, first, because as you mentioned before, a lot of time is wasted just find trying to find the right prospects and reaching out to them but also a lot of time is wasted reaching out to the wrong ones um and so it takes a long time if you don't provide your reps with quality list of accounts to go after for them to go tease through all of it and figure out who the right ones are get them added to the crm go find phone numbers for people etc cetera, etc cetera. so part of this goes along with the data enrichment story um and and the efficiency that you can drive from that. But a lot of this is just like, if you just weed out the garbage, what's left over is inherently going to be better and a, and a better use of, of everyone's time. You'll see, you should see if this works right, you should see an improvement in your CAC almost immediately. And that's, yeah, it's sorry, not... acronym there, uh, cost per acquired customer. It should be cheaper to acquire customers if you're using uh, this approach. Oh man, I almost let an acronym slide by. Glad you caught that. I didn't. <laughs> Well, tell us more about data. And I'll just say before you dive in, I completely agree with you. It's really simple. If you think about the mathematics that goes into sales, the effectiveness of your messaging, your ability to create pipeline and close pipeline, all the skills in the world don't help you if you're calling the wrong prospect. Yeah. And, and what we're trying to isolate here is uh, a propensity to buy, but that could be, you know, different at different stages in the funnel. So I'll give you an example. If you're uh, a high propensity to buy at the negotiation stage, well, that's very straightforward. Okay, they're likely to sign the contract, great. But what does likelihood to buy look like in the lead stages of the funnel, in the prospecting stages of the funnel? Well, it's really those conversion points between those different early stages and later stages there. So just mathematically, if you double the conversion rate from outreach to response, then you double the out double the win rate on average between outreach and closed deal. And so you, you get a lot of efficiency by just moving the needle a little bit in the earliest stages of the funnel that results in higher win rates later. 100%. We got a question from the audience and Sarah, thank you for calling that out because I missed it. Mike, would you like to jump on camera and ask a question? Yeah, sure. <laughs> And I'll just say, thanks for letting me in. I've never joined one of these before. Um, Welcome. Yeah, thanks. So we're, we, uh, we're territory planning historically sat in our company within the sales managers themselves. And then they would figure out amongst the reps, like who gets what. And we've done both geographical ones or industry-based ones. But I was wondering, we've, we've also played with different uh, suppliers for this data enrichment or for the firmographic information. If there was kind of an opinion, we're kind of in an active debate internally now about if people had experience, good or bad with, some of those where we to try to get the accurate firmographic information. I put in a couple of the, in the consideration set, but I know there's more. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of it can be industry specific. If you're looking at office buildings or whatever, like a co-star would be really great. That won't apply to a lot of people. The classic ones that are um, you know, built with is really good for technographic information. Uh, Zoom info is sort of the classic generalist data source for things like firmographic information. Um, but there's a lot of a lot of good tools out there. I usually when I'm looking at this, I go to G2 okay. and just search uh, different size companies, depending on industries, et cetera. They do a pretty good job of kind of guiding you there. Um, I don't know, Eddie, do you have any pointers there? 
I do, but like, I'll be honest with you. Like this is coming from like when I used to sell this stuff. So you can keep me honest here, Joel, and tell me if this is BS. But what I would always tell people is take a sample set of data. So find some customers you have, some prospects that you know the data on, and then think through like, what data points do I need in order to identify more companies like this? And how does that compare to the data set that I can get as I'm evaluating this tool? Mm -hmm. So you take it to ZoomInfo, for example, A, is ZoomInfo giving you the data points that you need? And B, is it in line mostly with the data that you already have such that you can you can trust it. I think what Joel said about industry is really important. CoStar is one that's really uh, common in commercial real estate. I worked in private equity venture capital before I, I got into, into tech about 10 years ago. And like we needed to know like if an investor had a certain amount of assets under management, you're not going to get that out of Zoom info. Mm. Um, so you would use tools like Prequent or PitchBook. Um, so it's really got to be specific to the data points that you need to identify the right right prospects okay cool and then the other one's like uh you know we we have we have a few hundred sales reps that use um, linkedin sales navigator to find the people to target and, you know then they're moving that into a cadence or a flow or whatever for our outreach yep. so linkedin now has this linkedin sales insights where they're kind of trying to elbow their way into this space and we we've been pitched it and i just didn't know if anyone had any direct experience with it so it looks, it looks cool. And I, I know that we are kind of dependent on that company already for our sales navigator for people finding. So it seems kind of like, well, we should look at if, if that's maybe where we should also do our company finding. But um, anyway, we're kind of still in the exploratory stages. I, I would do the exploratory uh, compare and contrast. And we're going to talk about isolating the, the variables for you that matter, because this really is what your territory management should be built upon. Mm -hmm. So as Eddie's mentioning, you know, figure out the things that matter for you and your business and somebody that you know the data for, get a sample set of those together, and then look at a couple of different tools and see what has what and what looks to be more accurate than, than which. Yeah. And you also don't have to rely on just one data source. So you think about it, you might use one source to find, you know, all the companies or all the companies that fit certain criteria and then sort of maybe, you know, cross-reference that with your proprietary data or a secondary tool set that can help you narrow it even further and or give you like the information you need for the contacts within the organization. Or LinkedIn is a really great example of that. Like oftentimes you can get a lot of really rich intelligence inside of LinkedIn, but it may or may not be the best tool to find the company to start with because oftentimes the way that like LinkedIn classifies companies is not super sophisticated. Okay. Yeah, thanks guys. That's helpful. Appreciate it. Awesome. Joel, you want to dive deeper into data here? Yeah, yeah. So unfortunately in revenue operations, or fortunately, uh, a lot of it always comes back to data as a starting point. Um, and this is no difference, but uh, what we're trying to do is combine anecdotal or qualitative information with, with hard and fact-based data points. So Propensity to buy or likelihood to buy is really what we're trying to get to. And you want to prioritize all the accounts in your entire universe by that fact. So that's really what we're trying to where we're trying to get to at the end of the day. If something has a bigger likelihood to sell, or if it's going to sell at a much larger price point, those are two things that uh, kind of go into go into that. So where do you where do you begin? I think. Okay, we want to we want to sell a lot of stuff. That's that's intuitive. But where do you begin with that? Well. I would say start off by like talking to your reps. Usually they've been selling for a bit of time. Uh, your managers know what, what a good account looks like. Like start there as your hypothesis or, or sort of your, your baseline. If they say bigger, bigger accounts is better, well, it's great. There's probably a limit to that. A lot of companies 
uh, smaller, early stage companies are who we target. Maybe it's different industries. Maybe there are certain identification points that are unique to your industry that might be really important, but it's good to just kind of get those down on paper. What you're trying to look for though, is something that's atypical. So if you are in a market with more than one competitor, I promise you that they're looking at similar things that, that what you're going to come up with in your first four or five variables. Uh, bigger accounts are better. That's not that's not anything new. That's not rocket science. However, um, maybe you're a better fit for customers that have this one unique thing that your, your competitors don't. Um, and so this is going to be a competitive advantage to you is to take some time and really think about this and isolate. Like, what are those unique idiosyncratic things that make a customer ideal for me um, that other people won't intuitively expect? Joel, it's interesting you mentioned that. I was... I saw a post on LinkedIn right before I jumped into this um, by Scott Lee, who's a, a phenomenally intelligent sales leader. And he said, you know, when I'm talking to most founders, I say the first thing you need to do is narrow your ICP, get super laser focused, right? And I thought our conversation is probably going to end up touching on ICP a lot because that's ultimately where territories are built from. Could you share a little bit more about this, or I can too, on how important it is to narrow your ICP, how you do that and why? Yeah, so importance, how and why. So it's, it is incredibly important to narrow your ICP. Um, otherwise, you're just trying to talk to anybody and hope that anybody will buy your product. Um, if you have a product market fit, um, then you have a product and you have a market uh, and they fit. Uh, that market is essentially your ICP. Um, so I know that's a little simplistic, but um, if not everybody want your product. In fact, the more focused you can be on the people that you need to go talk to who will buy your product, the more efficient you'll be with your time and the more successful you'll be as a company. I think that bit is intuitive. The how is a little bit more difficult. Um, so you're initially going to have a, a set of customers that your organization starts with. You'll have a general sense of the pain uh, that people are feeling in a particular market and your product is gonna be designed to, to fit whatever need that presents. Um, but, um, what you need to do is not stop there. Um, the how is more about like, how do you set up something that monitors that on a continuous basis? And there are some, um, you'll, it's, it's very difficult to measure that specifically be able to be able to measure some things around it. So if you have a really strong product market fit, your win rates will, uh, and price points will stay maintained or elevated. If you notice that your, uh, price point continuously weakens, my guess is that you're not serving or providing as much value to people as you were before, or maybe there's a new entrant in the market that's undercutting you. And so you'll just start to see weakness in a lot of sales metrics. Um, and you might just see weakness in earlier stage, like late funnel metrics around, um, maybe you're getting to that stage in the funnel uh, around consideration, or I guess basically the point where someone wants to talk to a salesperson Maybe you're seeing a fall off in that, and that could also come from a weakness in, in your focus on ICP or that the ICP is sort of moving away from you and your product set. Yeah. Does that make I sense? Think, I agree with you here. I would just say, I, I think it does make sense. I would say, I see it differently when you say, I think that this is common sense. 
having worked as a sales rep for so long and so many sales organizations, I think there is this natural inclination for anybody that's in sales or leadership to want to cast the widest net possible thinking like, well, if we're not capturing that, we're losing opportunity. And the reality is, is that every single prospect, I don't care how narrow you, you define your ICP, every single prospect is different and they're going to need different things from you. And so the more that you're stretching, oh, okay, like this is an enterprise account and this is an SMB account. This is in this industry and that's in that industry, or they're in the same industry, but they're in two different verticals. You need to, every step in your sales process needs some customization in order to win that customer over. And so you end up stretching yourself so thin that you as a company and each of your individual sales reps are just far less effective as opposed to just saying, and I know we're going to get into capacity planning here, but how many accounts can we cover to begin with? And if we figure that out, what is the narrowest possible definition of who we should be covering so that we can focus all of our energies as an organization and not just sales, but think about enablement, think about product, everything into that. Your classic example of deviating away from this is every startup that starts an SMB and then says, we need to go enterprise. And they think, let's just hire an enterprise rep and start making calls. And that never works. Because enterprise customers need a completely different buying process. They oftentimes need a different product. You think about like the security that you need in an enterprise product that SMBs often do not require in order to purchase. And you have to plan out your entire go-to-market strategy differently to tackle that market than you do SMB. The other classic example is when we're you know, doing everything by geo, each rep is covering every single industry that you cover. And so you're the master of all and, or sorry, the jack of all trades, master of none. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to keep this moving. So I'm, I'm going to push on uh, in a second, but just to have an anecdote, watch fast food companies as they grow and then crush their menus. This is a classic example of it. Inertia is always going to push you as broad a net as possible. When I was speaking earlier, it was a little bit maybe too much with a, uh, the blinders of RevOps on, a lot of people in your organization are going to want to go the opposite direction with it. And it's your responsibility in RevOps to kind of try and keep guard on that. But yeah, watch Starbucks, watch McDonald's. They will focus in on a product set for a particular set of customers. Those customers show up and they just keep adding and they just keep adding they just keep adding. And then suddenly people start going to other restaurants because they don't know what they're supposed to be getting to McDonald's and McDonald's doesn't mean anything to them. And then they chop their menu in half and people start coming back. Just watch it. Happens all probably every five years. All right. That's, that's a weird anecdote, but I'm going to, I'm going to pivot I back here. Let's, yeah. let's keep going though. Um, we're going to pivot back here. Interview your, your, your folks, get a set of variables that they think matter. Try to go as deep on that as possible and as unique to you and your organization as possible. Then use the data that you've got to check that. So work backwards, look at people that came into the funnel a year ago and how they progressed and like measure them against these variables and see if the ones that have these variables are actually winning deals at a higher rate and at a higher price point. There's a lot of fancy stuff that you can do if you know how to run regressions and you know, maybe you've got machine learning algorithms or whatever uh, that your team has access to. A lot of people don't. So just like, just do correlation. That's a good, good enough place to get started. And you'll be able to check without a huge data set, whether or not something is trending in one direction or not. All you need it to do is to trend in the right direction. By what degree, as long as it's not nothing, then that's a good thing to start tracking, right? So if you notice that customers in a certain industry are closing at a higher rate than other ones in the industry, then yes, mark that. 
Let's go after more customers in that industry. And as we go through time, you're gonna to continue to test that in sort of a non, maybe slightly scientific way. But as long as you're constantly testing that, you're gonna be able to like keep on top of this and make sure that people are chasing the right, the right customers. Makes a lot of sense. I burned a lot of time on my last commentary, so I'll let you move on to the next point. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good, man. Uh, I just want to make sure that we're uh, we're being tactical here because I think that that's really where the the value is. So uh, you can't do any of this unless you have the data in the, in your CRM. So um, obviously, do whatever you can to enrich that. Make sure that your um, CRM has as many accounts in it as possible. You may have to employ. Um, you know, data sources, tools, technologies, maybe a data enrichment intern for a bit, whatever, but you want to get as many of the accounts that you think are applicable, maybe all of them in a certain industry, all of them in a certain region, um, just, just start from, because the last thing you want to do is to go through this exercise and you have, you find out that actually only 200 accounts matter. My reps can cover hundred accounts each and I've got five reps to feed and then what? So overdo this, overdo this piece, be, be as exhaustive as you can with that. I can't stress that enough. Um, and then secondarily, test the data that you're getting. I was in e-commerce space and we were looking at industries and a bunch of them are misclassified. We had Long John Silvers as a heavy manufacturer listed in there. Uh, it was garbage. That got put into someone's territory. The territory danced and sung and they didn't buy into it at all because Long John Silvers was a heavy manufacturer. So you really only have one shot at this. You have to get buy-in from the beginning. So to get ahead of that, do some data quality testing, try to get up as many duplicates out of there as possible and go in as clean as you can uh, when you start building these things out. It's also gonna mess up your results if your data is funky. You won't be able to draw the conclusions that you, you would otherwise be able to draw if you have that. Yeah. So much in there to unpack. Question for you, how do you balance out this desire to have this broad set of data with the cost to get that data um, and also just the effort to put it in there? How, where do you find the balance? Like I'd love to have like 8 million accounts in our Salesforce that all have perfect data because we paid yeah. for it from Zoom Info. And we also like outsourced to the Philippines to have each one of them manually researched. How do we balance these? Well, you do have to do a little bit of that. Like data isn't free. You know, people are typically, if, if your company has been around for a while, you're probably going to have a lot of accounts in there. Um, so it may be a matter of cleaning up. It's easier to get stuff in there clean to begin with than it is to clean up stuff after the fact. So it depends on where you are. It's probably pretty easy in a lot of industries to get a list from some source of all of them. You know, trade publications might have lists. Uh, you know, something like Zoom Info is a great start. But, you know, just making sure you get that stuff in there to begin with, I think is, is a better place to be. Cleaning it up after the fact, you kind of just have to spot check. You know, a good, a good thing is that a lot of these tools will refresh their data on a regular. And so you can set up an integration that pushes stuff straight into the Salesforce or whatever systems you're using on a repeat basis. So refresh every week, refresh every month. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but it kind of depends maybe on your industry a bit. No, I think it, it does. And I think, I think, although it'd be interesting if you want to debate this with me, that you've got to choose your battles because you have to protect selling time as well. I know that like when I worked at Salesforce, for example, and I don't know that they're the end all be all in great data management, 
but they did a really good job of making sure that no accounts were ever created that were not accurate and put in the right territory. And they did that by not allowing salespeople to even create accounts. Um, mm -hmm. And they looked for certain things, but then beyond that, like there were a lot of data issues that they had. And I think that they looked at that and said, this isn't perfect, but we've got to choose our battles. How do you yeah. see balancing that with like, if I'm one of your A's, Joel, respectfully, I know you want perfect data, but like I got deals to close. I only got so much time to spend doing data updates. Yeah. What I would say is don't install this new territory process until it's ready. Whatever you're using right now, keep using it, which means don't pull salespeople away to spend a lot of time doing this project. So if you need to start with your BDR team um, and move your way upwards, the, the least amount of time and uh, distraction that you're applying to the sales team, the better. So again, that's why I like to, I prefer tools. I prefer offshore teams. If you have that kind of thing, maybe interns from the local college, you know, maybe members of your team, there's a lot of things that you can do that, that won't deviate the uh, sales team from their focus. Yeah, I completely agree. And not to plug our own services too much, but we do have an entire data team. And one of the things that I've found to be incredibly valuable that they do is using algorithms to identify those duplicates that are either definitely duplicates and then we can just use a machine to merge them or potentially duplicates. And then we can hand that off to, you know, an EA or a team in the Philippines or what have you to manually go through that. And it saves everybody just an incredible amount of time. Yeah, also, you can yeah. do some of that stuff, even with the tools just right inside of Salesforce. Yeah, um, there will be a, a, a tough transition point at some at some point in the future where I would highly recommend you do get control on who can create accounts and you limit that away from your sales team. If you do not do that today, that's probably the source of a lot of duplicates and bad data, but you'll have to make sure that you get buy-in before you just rip that away. You can't just take that away and upset the apple cart too much or else you're you might get off on a wrong foot as it pertains to this topic, because again, this topic is fraught with contention and politics and territorialisms and all, all the things that go with that. So um, make sure you tread lightly and have your ducks in a row. I think that's fair. I know that if I wanted to create an account at Salesforce, I would ironically have to like email an SDR and ask them to create it for me. And then they had a process they had to follow to make sure like, do we have a duplicate? Is this account in this territory or not? Is it, a, let's put it in the right territory. And that would only go to me if it was indeed meant to be in my territory. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a great process to have process to have. If you, uh, if you want to use your, your development reps for that kind of thing, um, ideally, you don't even have to bother them if you set this up right. But um, we'll get on to the, the next pieces of this, which are uh, who gets what and who can handle what. Um, and I think that's a little bit of a segue into capacity planning, which you teased earlier, Eddie. Um, what is the right size of a territory is always a really big question. And the answer is your go-to-market motion will determine that. So uh, if you have a person if you reset your territories once a year, let's say, and you a person within that team can only handle, let's say 500 accounts in that year, well then a territory should be 500 accounts, maybe a little bit more, you know, if they wanna over, overdo it. If you are an enterprise or strategic sales team and you are at Microsoft and Microsoft is your customer and that's it, well, your territory is one. So it, you need to do a little bit of research. You need to be able to talk to your sales managers in particular, going to be great to help you understand this. Like what is the expectation for the rep in that team uh, as far as coverage is concerned? Because 
Another way that you get leakage in this whole process is that accounts are not being touched, right? So not only does a rep not necessarily go after the right accounts, if you just give them a territory that's way too big, but if you give them a territory that's 500 accounts and they can only cover 100 of them, you've got 400 top-notch accounts that are not getting touched. And that is absolutely not where you want to end up. What about contacts not being touched? What if you're going single thread through every account, but there are three or four other key stakeholders that can influence and generate a pipeline for you that you're not touching? Yeah, it's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. So what's the expectation for each of these accounts about the number of personas that you would reach out to? Right. You know, if I own Microsoft, there's a ton of people maybe at Microsoft that I want to talk to. However, if I've got 500 accounts, maybe there's only two people at each account, maybe three. And so that's also going to be where we end up is the last stage of this is actually getting the people and their information, the contact uh, points, the phone numbers, the email addresses, the LinkedIn profiles, et cetera, into the CRM so they can optimize this. At the end of the day, we want to provide the salesperson with a list of not only the accounts that you go after, but here's also the updated contact information for all of them. So they don't have to think at all. They just can just burn away at these things and, and crush it. Tell me if you're in line with this, but the way I think about this is that let's say that there are four contacts that we should be going after in each organization on average. And I think about what is our actual outbound process? How long does it take? How many calls can we actually do in a day and still have effective messaging? And so then you kind of take that math and compare it to the math of the number of people per account. And you can also take the number of outreaches you want to do if we're talking about cold outbound. Yep. And you can quickly figure out how many accounts can I cover in a month or two months? And then you put them into a sequence or a cadence if we're talking about just going pure outbound. Um, and you can pretty quickly figure out how many accounts need to go into each of those sequences or cadences in a given period of time. That's exactly the conversation you should have with the managers, right? What is the expectation for what someone should be, how many people someone should be hitting? Therefore, how many accounts can they hit? Therefore, over X period of time, be, while, we're, while we sort of have a territory in place before we reset it, you know, like how many accounts should be in there? And again, give yourself a little bit of buffer. What we're gonna do later on is we're gonna to continue to add accounts to the system and we're gonna sort of rotate in and out accounts that we know, let's say, you know, an account, we've spoken to them, they're not interested, they've signed a five-year agreement with a competitor. Maybe we don't want to have them, you know, pinged every day by our team. Let's circle back on that later. Okay, swap that account out. Not an ideal prospect at the moment. It's not a bad account, but it's not an ideal prospect at the moment. Let's bring a new one in. Let's replace that. And so you're going to have to have some of the stuff off to the side in addition to this. And so you're constantly should be refreshing the accounts that are in people's books. Um, you're also going to want to have accounts off to the side so that you have accounts available for when the next person joins. Um, so hopefully your team is growing and you're going to need uh, accounts to, to feed to them when they join your company and not just the leftovers uh, at the bottom of the pile. Yeah, and I think a key point here is, is rather than just giving each rep a thousand accounts that they can't possibly cover, let's say the right number is 200, we're giving the 200 best accounts and we're making sure that all of the sales resources we have as a company are focused on the highest opportunity list that we can possibly give them. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Which is another reason why geography, I think, has, has weakened uh, as a structure. I think it makes a lot of sense when you can only travel in a certain amount of distance. But if you're doing everything virtually, you have an inside sales team. It doesn't make sense to call, you know, have 50 reps in Wisconsin calling on airplane manufacturers. There's not enough of them up there. 
So what when you can just do it based on a, a list as opposed to a region, uh, you're going to set yourself a lot for a lot more efficiency, I think. And your your region one region won't be the size of New York City, and the other region the size of the entire state of Montana. You're going to be able to like manage things a little bit more evenly. Yeah, makes sense. Well, let's be cognizant of time. I'll let you move on to your next major point here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, this stuff is going to help out in a lot of different ways. So not only is this going to stitch your uh, product and, and product market fit to the territory that somebody's going to have, it's actually going to help you understand. Uh, the strategy or, or feedback into your strategy and product development cycle. And what I mean by that is the specific following thing. If you know what your targeted accounts are and you know the likelihood to buy based on certain variables, you can very easily come up with an equation that tells you this is the value of this account before you even prospect into it. So if I've got a 10% likelihood to buy and the average deal size is this, then one times the other equals that. Your territory sizes should also be balanced for this. So you can't give someone a hundred, let's say the, the territory size we determine needs to be hundred. You can't get somebody a hundred accounts that have a high likelihood to buy, but don't buy the average size deal. They buy a lot of small deals. And then another person, hundred accounts that on average buy a lot of large deals. This is sort of the art to this is like finding the right mix of accounts by size a potential opportunity. So we know the number of accounts, we're balanced by the size of the opportunity. Then we just have to like figure out the accounts to put in there specifically. So it's really those three things. And if you have those three things, you've got the right territories. Um, Here, here's a great example of this. So again, Salesforce did a lot of really great things, not the end all be all. And what I saw work and not work is they would say, okay, well, we sell licenses. So the more employees a company has, the more licenses they can buy. Therefore, it's a more valuable account. That makes sense to an extent. Where things would fall off is they would say, okay, this company has 500 employees and this company has 500 employees. However, the problem is, is maybe the first company is a software company and they might have 50 salespeople. The other is a manufacturing company and they might have two salespeople and 498 people on the floor running machines, not logging into Salesforce. And you could see that in the data as well. Like you could pretty easily figure out that also, in addition to this, that software companies by and large would spend more money on Salesforce than manufacturing companies on average. So you could take the data and run the analysis on that and determine that a 500 person manufacturing company is worth far less than a 500 person software company. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. And tracking the number, if, if you find that there's that much of a discrepancy, well, then maybe size of company isn't the right variable. Maybe that's what you've been using before, but maybe it's not the right variable. Maybe number of sales headcount is, right? And so sort of getting into the what's idiosyncratic to you guys that drives what's an ideal customer um, is something to maybe add to your formula and kind of circle back and like loop it into your... Um, Whip it into your, your research and your enrichment for your data processes. If, if we know the size of, size of a, a territory and what it should be, and we generally know like the opportunity that we're dealing with, how do you kind of connect the two? You really should have a RevOps kind of territory specific scoring algorithm. And it doesn't have to be some like fancy equation. It's more or less the same stuff that we've been doing up until now. It's just like, we know these five variables matter give them a point score, give each one a point. Okay, if they've got five, then that's five points. If they've got four of the five, then that's four points. 
and just get them into a tiering structure. Uh, maybe assign more points if you know something matters the most, but like just get them into a tiering structure where you're, you've got them sort of priority sort ordered, top, take the top 10% of those accounts and just call those like your A's, your tier ones, your gold stars. Those should definitely be in people's territories. Take the next 20% of those accounts, put, give those a B, a number two, uh, you know, a silver star, whatever you want. Those should probably also be in people's territories. The rest of it, I think you can, if you've got a, a big enough account set, you can probably do away with it or kind of set that off to the side. Um, I like to think of like, if you get the top, I'm doing Pareto principle stuff here, but basically like 80% of your sales will come from 20% of your customers. I think that holds true in most places. I think it's proven to hold true in a lot of places. So really, you know, we're getting the top 20%. So you're going to get your 80% of your sales or close to it. Um, and then you're adding kind of like that next 10%. So to recap, top 10% are, are A's, next 20% are B's. Those become your territories and you're going to cover the vast majority of your sales out of those accounts. And if you've got enough, hopefully that's enough to build your territories off of, but take the rest of it. And there, it kind of has two different flavors. One, maybe it's not as great an account. Okay. We're still going to market to them because maybe we might have a data point wrong or maybe, um, you know, they're growing and next year they're going to be more important. So we're going to continue to market to like this third group, but there's also a bunch of there that we just probably don't know a whole lot about yet. And so they may be A's or B's, but, um, we need to continue to spend the time to make sure that they're scored properly and have the variables tracked properly. And so you're constantly kind of continuing to like massage and work the, the ones in this sort of bottom category as you market to them, et cetera. You're not ignoring them, but having your salespeople focus on the top is really where the leverage comes for the whole organization. Yeah, this is the methodology that I've followed for a long time. This is what Salesforce uses. And I think you also want to think about how this correlates with the actual outbound process. So those tier ones are where you'd have a highly tailored approach. You might go to the website, look through every single executive, maybe read their annual report, their blog posts, et cetera, depending on the size of the company, obviously, and just go really deep. Those tier twos, you might not have as much time to go that deep on. And so where you're saying, hey, we're just going to take 10% and make them the tier one, that makes a lot of sense because you get a very small list that you can go very deep into because you think this is where your big strategic deals are going to come from. That tier two, you got to work a little bit more efficiently. And then tier three, you're working far more efficiently by primarily letting marketing do the work and seeing what comes of it. And then as you have those conversations, you collect more information that then informs whether or not those tier ones need to become tier threes or tier threes need to become tier ones because you now not have new information. But this brings us to our debate that we uh, we knew yeah. we were gonna get into, Joel. Should that be the sales rep or should that be RevOps determining how those accounts move? I think we might be talking about two different things and, and let me okay. explain. So. There is a should be a sales owned process for determining what the top targeted accounts are, where you're going to dive deep and you're going to do the research and you're going to read your quarterly reports and you're going to become an expert in them as you're prospecting them. And then there is maybe a tier two or tier three, whatever. You have your targeted list that's constantly rotating um, and you're, you're just kind of working your way through it. And it's sort of a work plan or an account planning strategy. If something is a tier one in that sense, great, but 
What we want to do is make sure that everything in the account is a, is a tier one or two from a RevOps perspective, which is why I use a lettering system usually to start off with, like an A and a B, because for me, the profile of the account might be great. And that's still an A account or a B account. But the salesperson may not be prioritizing that one because maybe they know uh, they're not up for contract for another nine months. Or maybe of the, of the A's, these 10 accounts are who I'm focusing on. So those are tier one A's. And then the next set of accounts are tier two A's. So you have both a sales tactical approach that is a tiering and a prioritization, but your, your profile should be managed by revenue operations. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's really interesting. Cause I think the issue is, is that as, and you and I like did this planning over, uh, over Google Docs. So this is the first time we're actually chatting through this. When I read it, I was thinking, oh, well, where's the field in Salesforce that I need to update after I've like done all this deep research, or I talked to somebody and found out new information that they're with our competitor and they're in a four-year contract. So it sounds like you have like one field. So your, your A's and your B's and another field where the sales rep can say, okay, within that, this is our tier mm -hmm. one. Yeah. The A's and B's doesn't even have to be visible to your sales team because you don't necessarily have to have your sales team adjusting that. It's sort of like, if we know B2B SaaS companies in New York city are ideal profiles for us, that's great. Make a territory out of those accounts. Then the salesperson gets their accounts that are already filtered, which of which we think there's a high propensity to buy from all of them based on their profile. All right, now let's weed through and figure out which ones are actually the ones I'm going to go after, because clearly even within this group of good accounts, there are some great accounts and there are some not so great accounts. And then there's some, some dogs, maybe like, I don't want to give the impression that everything that's in those A's and B's is going to be perfect because you might have bad data. Uh, that company might be going out of business. It's a bad business climate generally, or there's a shift in market. Like there's all, all kinds of reasons why there'll be some duds there. This is a directional thing as opposed to uh, a hard and fast, absolute, like this is the account that's the most important for you. What I want to say as well is there's a, a corollary to that in that in the stuff that we cordoned off to the side and kind of had marketing go after, there is going to be awesome accounts in there for the same reasons. Maybe we don't have the data right. Maybe they're growing really fast, et cetera. So both groups are going to have good accounts and bad accounts. It's just that in the territories, we want the optimum amount of top accounts and very, very few duds. And by doing that, what we're expecting is like over the whole portfolio of accounts that we give reps, they're going to have a lot higher propensity to buy. They're going to sell bigger deals. They're going to spend all their time focused on the right things. And then it's up to the tactics of the sales rep and like their expertise to like go hone in and figure out who to attack first. Yeah. And I will say like equally, uh, first, I'm very aligned with that. And there's a lot of value in RevOps doing all that upfront work for the sales rep. What I've experienced, I've never had RevOps do this for me. And so then I'm sitting there spending all my sales time doing this research. I'm running reports in Salesforce. I'm analyzing data. My colleagues may not be able to do that. Like there's a lot of folks I worked with at Salesforce that didn't know how to run a report in Salesforce. Might sound crazy, but this is the truth. And so now they're not able to call the most effective accounts because they don't know how to like build this out. 
and or they're losing all this time. So if RevOps starts that process by looking at all the data, then you can go deeper and say, oh, like I can see the call note from the last rep that just met with their entire executive team six months ago and the 15 reasons why this is a terrible customer. RevOps is not going to catch that. But I think that it shouldn't be on the sales rep to be doing basic data analysis and looking at like industry codes and employee headcount and things that can all be run algorithmically to get them a huge head start. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's um, uh, it's one of those, the idea is rising tides raise all boats. So whether you're, you don't need to like have a, a, a Eddie like yourself, a, a Salesforce whiz who can cut through the data and do the analysis on their own to prioritize their accounts. You don't want to have to rely on that. You want all of your reps uh, no matter their sophistication in Salesforce or whatever CRM you're using, uh, you don't want to have to rely on that. You want to have them all fed the right stuff to begin with. And so taking this down to the ground, like actually you've got these balanced accounts or balanced territory, sorry, that are the right size that have the garbage sort of cut away from them. What's left is like solid, um, the best possible grouping of accounts that you can provide to your sales team. Only then should you go for contact number one, all right? A lot of people will go find the personas or the directors or the top fancy titles that work at all these companies, the CEO for every company. That is not, that is not a good use of time. So we're talking about the top 30% of your accounts that are in your territories. If you only focus on getting the, the contact details for them, you should be like saving a lot of time. You're saving 70% of your time. Now, of course, we want contact details for all the other ones and marketing will absolutely need the, the contact details for the ones that are left over, but you really should tighten up and research all of the persona-driven contacts and titles that matter to those A's and B's that are in your territories. So not only do your reps know who to go after generally, but the contact information is there to begin with. So it's almost like waking up in the morning, going into work and having like a call list prepared for you. That saves so much time for your sales reps and makes them super duper efficient and they're gonna love you for it. So- Can I take this even a step further? Yeah, yeah. So for me, I'm a really big advocate that salespeople should be doing their research before reaching out. And it is so incredibly time consuming to go find that person on LinkedIn, go find their website, go figure out like where XYZ is. It depends on, you know, the data that you're, that you need in order to sell. If you can have all of that at the click of a button, right in one place, whether it's in Salesforce or outreach or sales loft, wherever they're doing their prospecting, and you can do this in these tools. Now, all of a sudden you just click four links and boom, 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 all your tabs open up. You do the research that can massively accelerate this even further. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so on a contact, I would say you, you want to get a phone number if you can get it. You definitely want to get an email address if you can get it. Get their LinkedIn. That's the step that a lot of people miss. Get their LinkedIn profile. So they can just like sales rep comes in, clicks, boom, LinkedIn. There's their, their job history. There's a link to their company. They don't have to go searching for that stuff. And then, you know, if there's a specific thing that your business needs, you know, in your interviewing process, try to tease out like, what do your reps want to have? What, what kind of sources of information do they look at? Are there trade specific publications or, um, you know, just the kind of things that we talked about in the very beginning of this conversation? Are there like specific things that your business would want to research before they dive in? Try to get that captured. Um, and linked into that that contact. There's no reason not to do it. It's very easy to put a field on there and say, you know, LinkedIn profile link or something. 
Yep. Social media profiles are really big for certain people in certain industries and very much not. Although it feels like everyone's on LinkedIn. Twitter is a good example where that might be really great if you're trying to sell to VCs, but maybe not so much if you're trying to sell to manufacturing companies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of this is data enrichment. You know, I mean, I think that's what this is called coming down to. So it really sort of requires that you step up in that direction. And I know a lot of people don't necessarily want to um, or have a hard time selling that idea of, of spending money on enrichment and more tools and things because they can be pretty expensive sometimes. I think this is the biggest way that you can make a case that that stuff is valuable. And then it, it just helps out all kinds of areas of your business. So anyway, hopefully that's helpful. I would say at minimum, what you're trying to start out with at least is two contacts on that account that are related to the personas that you have deemed uh, ideal to chase after. Um, so if you've got that, you're golden. And if, if you go out with your, with your stuff, uh, you're, you run out, roll out territories and maybe you've only got one, well, that's a heck of a lot better than not doing anything. So like all this stuff, it doesn't have to be absolutely perfect from that standpoint. You can always add this stuff later. You're just going to get a lot more bang for your buck if you, if you do go as far with this as you can. So yeah, uh, kind of the, the final stage is just sort of rolling this out. So ideally, you've got the input from your, your sales reps, your sales managers. Uh, you've got the right size of territories based on that. You've got the right accounts in the territories, which are your top 30% of accounts, your A's and your B's. And then you're going out and you're researching and adding contact information. So who is the person there? What is their title? And then a couple of different ways to contact or research about them. And you're kind of going out there with that. If you go out there with that, people are going to be pretty darn happy. I have a feeling. Uh, and sort of explaining to them, do some enablement sessions about how I'm supposed to use this new territory. Oh my gosh, I used to have a thousand accounts. Now I've only got 200. What's happening? The world is collapsing. Just kind of like walking them through that and explaining them about how they expect to use it. And then having guardrails then put in place to say, hey, you can't add any more accounts, Mr. or Mrs. Sales Rep. We need to keep these things a little bit more buttoned up. And then having that process for when you add accounts to the system and who can do it, when do you uh, cycle out an account because you know they're not going to buy and how do you replace that? What happens if there's a dispute? So accidentally we have Nestle in two different regions. Okay, what do we do with that? Should you, as a, you know, do you have tactics for rules of engagement around, okay, I'm allowed to, that's okay because maybe different locations can be sold by different people or is that a really big problem because really our solution works for the corporate level only and one person needs to own the entire subsidiary chain of all these accounts. There's a lot of things you need, you should have in place around that. It's just simple rules of engagement. And if you don't at least have a dispute resolution process, that's clear and consistent. And then finally uh, know how long these are going to be in place. So if someone is going to be able to burn through their territory in six months, you need to make sure you're refreshing territories on the regular every six months, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of this may be determined by the size of territory and the refresh rate, but um, I promise you, if you apply a lot of these suggestions and tactics, you will see a big increase in the conversion rate during the prospecting process. And that's going to result in more pipeline, hopefully larger deal sizes and higher win rates overall. Love this. And that takes us basically to time. Unless you got anything more you want to add, Joel. 
No, just uh, let me know how it goes. Uh, I've taught this class at a couple different places and uh, it's usually gotten a pretty good response. So, um, you know, industry's changed. I think it's been about two years since the last time I did that. So hopefully people find value in this. And then, um, you know, if they find ideas or want to pitch something to make this make this better, I'm always, I'm always interested. This is one of my favorite topics. You raise a good point here. Yeah. If anybody's here or listening on the podcast, and you guys have questions like ping us on LinkedIn. We're both available. Happy to help. That's why we do this stuff. So, but anyway, we're at time. Joel, thank you so much for putting this together as always. And thank you all in our audience for coming and joining us for this event. We hope that this was valuable and helpful for you.